1959, looking back on his novel Brave New World and talking about the dodo, Aldous Huxley wrote, Any bird that has learned how to grub up a good living without being compelled to use its wings will soon renounce the privilege of flight and remain forever grounded. Something analogous is true of human beings. If the bread is supplied regularly and copiously three times a day, many of them will be perfectly content to live by bread alone, or at least by bread and circuses alone. In the end, says the Grand Inquisitor in Dostoevsky's parable, in the end they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, make us your slaves, but feed us. And when Alyosha Karamazov asks his brother, the teller of the story, if the Grand Inquisitor is speaking ironically, Ivan answers, not a bit of it. He claims it as a merit for himself and his church that they have vanquished freedom and done so to make men happy. But what relevance has this got for us today? And does Huxley's uh, Brave New World reveal to us a dystopia or a utopia? I'm Alex Hoseason, beta minus at the best of times. Uh, I'm Matthew Campbell, and I'm Void Camp compliant. <laughs> I'm Michael Keery, uh, I don't have anything funny to add on. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so... Um, Showing the signs of being a nut. Say, say, and this is my favourite store on the Citadel. Wait a minute. You've been playing uh, <laughs> Mass Effect. <Yeah. laughs> Alright, cool. Um, <laughs> we'll do that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Alright, um, Matt, um, so just to begin, is it alright if you give us a run yeah. over the plot? Yeah. So, Brave New World takes place in a near future after some kind of apocalyptic war. And the world population is limited and ruled by a world government. Uh, and the novel begins by introducing us to what's become of humanity. We're grown in bottling plants. It's literally a production line factory. Uh, and the novel takes us then to our one of our first protagonists, Bernard Marx, who is a Alpha Plus, the highest caste of human, who, due to some unknown error, is shorter than he should be, and he therefore has a massive inferiority complex, and doesn't like many of the people he associates with. Uh, he and the girl he is having, there are no relationships in this society, travel out to one of these savage reservations, uh, where they keep, they, they keep the rest of humanity, basically. Um, it is determined that the savage reservations were not worth cultivating, or were not cultivatable. On the Savage Reservation, they meet John. John Savage is a naturally born human, as all savages are, but his mother was a member of the world state who was accidentally left behind on a previous holiday. Uh, sensing a chance to get his revenge on the society he dislikes, Bernard Marx takes John Savage back to the supposedly perfect world of utopian England. Utopian England, everyone goes to the feelies instead of the movies. They play zero-gravity tennis, they listen to hyper-violins and ultra-cellos, whatever they are. But this is a world of Marxist alienation, and the savage does not like it. And despite becoming a celebrity in utopian England, the savage chooses to reject, physically at times, this entire society. The encounter is ruinous to Bernard Marx, who, instead of becoming famous, gets himself exiled to Iceland. The savage tries to strike a balance between barbarism and civilization by living an isolated life in a ruined lighthouse. But when the press of the world state find him, um, he has an encounter with an awful lot of what we might as well term fans. And after a drug-induced orgy involving an awful lot of flagellation, the savage takes his own life, unable to find anywhere to live, either at home or in this world. Okay, great, thanks. I, I mean, I, I think that one of the weird things I found about the novel was, it, it, I mean, in some ways it leaves us pr profoundly unresolved. 
about a lot of the experiences we've had while going through it and and I'm, I'm decidedly unclear on what to think about that. I think I have some ideas, but I mean, you had a slightly different reading, Mike. I mean, did you like it? Um, I liked the book. I enjoyed it. I, on a sort of a, on an entertainment level, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I see what you mean in terms of being unresolved. By comparison, say, with Orwell, where it's pretty clear what, to a large extent, what we're supposed to think. What's the bad and what's the good? And the protagonist and how we're supposed to feel sympathy for him and all that is, is made perfectly clear to us. The characters in Brave New World, their choices, what happens to them, uh, what we think about the world as a result, is a little bit less resolved. Um, where I think perhaps, and this will probably become the theme of this uh, podcast, where I perhaps disagree with you guys, I suspect, just from some of your comments, is that um, I think Huxley is uh, really giving us a work of profound critique. Um, of what he's saying. I think this is clear from his later letter, uh, which I think is something like entitled Return to Brave New World. Um, and he's giving us a critique of something that in his era, I think Matt said it before the taping, the media was becoming more and more powerful. His trips to America, similar to people like Theodore Adorno and others who went to America, found that, and interestingly enough, the founder of Al Qaeda, who also went to America, and all three of them encountered the same thing, which was that the growth of hedonism breakdown of, sort of what they saw as um, the societal norm towards self-improvement, intellectualism, uh, the kinds of moral progress that they saw as being particularly important, and instead an embrasure of quick fix happiness, uh, sort of McDonald's recipe happiness, and so on. And he's very, very critical of that, and I think ultimately I think Neil Postman sums him up as somebody who is really profoundly terrified, as opposed to Orwell, who's terrified of what our fears will make us do. Huxley, profoundly terrified of what our desires might make us do. I think that's, I think that's the case. But at the same time, I mean, I can't help but think, within within the society itself, in the novel, there isn't any desire actually. While there seems to be a bit of a contradiction in the novel, while the conditioning the hypnopedia or sleep learning that they go through and everything else is taught them to desire in a particular way because the resolve of that desire in the act of consumption whether it's the drug or whether it's uh, new clothes or anything else is so easily fulfilled it becomes quite hard to see that desire as something you could consider as genuine yeah and then I, I think one of the things we see with with John is he's not trying to come out with any kind of um, fix in, in, in his kind of elemental anger and everything else. It, what he's actually defending a lot of the time is desire. So, certainly, the entertainments of the world state that we see are fundamentally shallow in many important regards. And to a very true extent, that is Huxley's reaction to the Hollywood and the California he encountered. But there are characters in the novel who seek a different ty type of recreation in terms of drama. So the novel takes its name obviously from Shakespeare and John Savage has a copy of the complete works quotes at length from it. But at one point there's a comment, Helmholtz Watson, who's a propaganda writer, wants to try and write drama but he's told he can't. And the line is, you can't have tragedies without social instability. And I think it's a mistake to characterise our desire for entertainment as what Huxley is portraying, because Huxley is portraying a very shallow interpretation of that. There's no romantic love, there is only sex. 
there is no um, great art, there is only shallow film. Mm. Um, there is no uplifting Mozart, there is only electronically composed jazz. I mean, to, the, to that extent, I think we agree with each other uh, quite a bit. I think that the, the real, as a warning of the future, I think the real problem with Huxley's book is that he treats, uh, and this is unsurprising for somebody who thinks that Freud is the last word on psychology, he treats human psychology as being it, it's much more limited than it actually is. He neglects the seemingly innate desire that we've seen since the 1930s quite strongly uh, of people to believe in things, to feel that they are at least touching on something profound. Uh, and people don't seem to derive a huge amount of satisfaction, in fact, derive an awful lot of anger from um, situations where they feel that they're deprived of something to strongly believe in. I think we see this a lot in politics, where even people who offer facile things to believe in, like Barack Obama, less facile things like Scottish independence and so on, all of us have been seen as being incredibly successful. People jump on board with them think they really want to believe in things, which is why I think that the fear that Huxley presents us with, which is that this sort of shallow consumer society will satisfy all our desires and keep the human uh, completely sated, is false. The only thing that you might say narratively defending Huxley is that he, and I think this is something I'm going to touch on probably at length at some point, is the technology side of this thing, which I think is well important for the first place. He <laughs> believes quite strongly in how the conditioning of individuals as well. So we're probably not, as a Huxley, a Huxley defender would say, dealing with the human subject, uh, with the individual or people, in the way that they are in a sort of a contemporary society. We're dealing with a conditioned group of people, uh, conditioned to X extent, uh, with X effect, which makes them more susceptible, we are guessing, or completely susceptible, I suppose, uh, with one or two exceptions, to the kinds of controls that um, the right now that's certainly accurate in terms of Bernard, the character, is patently aware of all the propagandistic things children are told, and whenever another character repeats them, we, as readers from his perspective, realise that these people only hold these opinions because they're conditioned to hold them. I want to return, if I can, to something you said about Huxley's context in writing, in that it's a rejection of the American consumerism he encountered. And in that extent, he dislikes the world state. But I think it's incredibly accurate to say that also of his era is his fear of political instability. And this is the extent to which I think Huxley thinks he is writing utopia. Because in the very Hobbesian sense, that the worst thing we can have is political instability which leads to all of us getting killed, Huxley is writing a very strong state because he's living through an era of nations apparently collapsing. Now when he follows this up in Brave New World Revisited, he does have a problem with hindsight, with what was frankly fascism that he was arguing for. A state in which the individual doesn't matter and the continuation of society is what's important. But I think he's significantly utopian in that regard and his rejection of consumerism is the dystopian part. I think there's a lot of interesting kind of metaphors going on throughout the book and I have a feeling that, I mean, if we were to compare um, coming as we do from different backgrounds and everything else, that I mean, I, I, I doubt, Mike, that you would reject kind of any idea of authoritarianism in the book because it's clearly there, right? But the source of it is something that we would probably disagree on. Do you see what I mean? Whether you see that totalitarian tendency in the idea of eugenics or whether you see it in the idea of consumption or whether you see it in the idea of the prioritisation of the whole over the individual are all three different, you know, are, are three very different sources of 
where you see those totalitarian ideas coming from. I mean, this is sort of the literary. I, I don't. Um, I see where Matthew is coming from, but I have a very different reading of what Huxley is doing. I don't think Huxley is trying to say to us, "Here is a world of control that has its excesses, but fundamentally stable and not something to be uh, to be lauded at." Uh, for me, the only thing that makes sense is that Huxley is saying to us, um, "In a the pursuit of stability, if that is the goal." that we can direct our resources of rationality and technology towards it. And this is what we will end up being. And this is something we probably don't want to be. I think the characters who embrace his stable state are, are ridiculous characters, like uh, Lenina. Um, those that question the state and think independently are sort of heroic, like Bernard's friend, who ends up in uh, Falklands or Iceland. I think we couldn't Falklands. Hell no, ends up in the Falklands. In the Falklands. And I think that's basically trying to tell us, these are the people that you should be emulating. These are the creatures that should be making up the society that should exist. And that as long as we have this sort of reflective, or as long as we pursue this reflective notions, um, we can live in a good society. I don't think he's trying to say to us that, which I'm starting to pick up from you guys, that fundamentally people are sort of a lost cause and we have to have some measure of stability. Let's hope it doesn't go too far. Well, if I can just portray the, <laughs> the counterpoint to that argument, because... Matt and I were discussing it earlier. I I think there's a few things going on here. I mean, obviously the the main character that kind of portrays the viewpoint that you're discussing here is is, is uh, Mustafa Mohamed, right? Uh, the the world controller guy. Um, world controller guy. I don't think he refers to himself as that. Um, I think, and 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 this is a kind of um, point of the book, um, which which you only kind of get to at the end. The argument for the society that Huxley's portraying within the book and without the book are internally consistent, right, in a lot of ways. And I, I, I think that from the point of view of inside the society, there's very little reason to go out of it and everything else. But the reason that these islands exist, you know, they're, they're, I mean, when, when Bernard's within the society, he sees going to these islands as hell. Right, as, as, as the worst possible place because they're low status and everything else. But it's revealed later on that actually they're the only place where real science, as it's um, as it's called, can be done. And and I think these islands exist to give Huxley an out. And I think they exist to give him an out for the kind of people who he sees as providing the ultimate basis of society. And and those are the clever people, the elite. Um, whatever else. I mean, contrary to another novel I was reading the other day, of course, there's, I mean, he doesn't follow that up in the plot. But he does portray it as the kind of, um, you know, he, he portrays it as the best possible place to be in some ways. And, and Mustafa Mond is Aldous Huxley, <laughs> I think. I think he is who Huxley sees himself as. Actually, he was named after... Um, a famous industrialist yeah. um, in a big plant in Birmingham, which Huxley wrote. Billingham. Um, yeah, Billingham, um, which Huxley wrote kind of about as, you know, brilliant order and consistency and everything else. But I think you get this strange twist when you, when you realise that, and that is what Huxley's doing there, is marrying that kind of industrialism and that kind of order and everything else to the highest intellectual virtue. Can I return yeah. to... You seem to suggest that we should be viewing Bernard Marx as a hero in this novel. 
Or at least a character to be emulated. No, uh, his friend. Oh, um, Helmholtz Watson. Yeah. That's fine, Dora. The, the other point is, Huxley's writings after Brave New World suggest that he does advocate for many of these positions. So he writes in 1958 um, that we've got to worry about the contamination of our genetic pool, quote. He's concerned about the diluting of genes by people with disabilities and low IQs. Um, quote, owing to the random but effective practice of dysgenics, IQ and physical vigor are on the decline. He later on says, obviously we must, with all possible speed, reduce the birth rate to the point where it does not exceed the death rate. The key was there being obviously and must. And then later follows this up with, quote, how can those who ought to take the pill but don't want to be persuaded to change their minds? He's writing after the Second World War. He, he's aware of the consequences of European fascism. And yet this is still a very authoritarian way to think about the future of humanity. Well, that I disagree with, because I think that if you look at people like... Uh... John Maynard Keynes, you would get basically exactly the same thing. I think there was it, it, that Huxley is elitist. I don't think there's any doubt. The intellectuals of his era were. It, it's just it's not a discussion. He is an elitist. Yeah. He would consider himself to be part of a traditional elite, possibly a hangover from the traditional notion that pervaded British society, which is that peers were supposed to govern the land in favour of the humble peasants who rule the land. Certain and notions like eugenics and uh, pop biology notions, or at least outdated biology notions were current then, they were in the air. And vast amounts of very intelligent people believe them. You don't even have to go back as far as um uh God, uh philosopher Victorian philosopher whose name escapes me, who was in favour of eugenics, etc. to a very, very large degree. No, no, not this in the late nineteenth century. Um you don't even have to go back that far to sort of find almost ad hoc notions like this. But a belief that people should be persuaded to control the population which certainly has been current throughout left-wing thought on and off environmentalist thought without authoritarianism for years. Notions that you need an elite in political positions of power and so on. Both of those things are perfectly possible with liberal democracies. I mean, the original notion of democracy, the common democracy they have, representative democracy is that. The normal people will obviously choose their betters to govern them. Those betters will then go into government and make sensible and wise decisions on behalf of the people. It's, um, this was the, the, the notion that was put in place at its heart. So I don't think you have to have, just because you're a believer in, you, in that, uh, these notions of biology being distorted, which was widely believed, uh, certainly in the 1930s, of uh, people in this era, amongst all of the intellectuals that we thought about, or at least most of them. And just because you believe in a patrician elite being the governing power, does not mean that you're going to believe in a uh, uh, fascist government. Churchill, I very strongly would think it's very likely we believe all of those things. And it's obviously a fighter against fascism. I, I, I think I agree with you. I, I, I think the question, though, is, is how much those ideas then give warrant to the control over reproduction and everything else, right? I mean, that's when you get it tied into, well, not just the freedom of meritocracy or greater ability or whatever else, if, if you believe in those things. But then that kind of switch that happens, well, with with the development of means of production and the conquest of nature and all of those things that allow, in, in Huxley's word, the principle of mass production to apply to reproduction um, and, and changes like that. So the whereas before you have supposedly kind of objective betters or wiser people or philosopher kings or whatever you want them to be, 
there's a difference between management, I think, which may or may not be, well, which which is compatible with liberal democracy, um, and 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 particularly meritocratic views of how that's how that works, and then the idea that the masses should be made stupid is a very different thing. I mean, in some ways, it's the logical conclusion, but I mean, it isn't Plato. Mm. I mean, th- th- this is the preposterously tricky but actually very compelling argument of the book in that the lower classes who are literally bred to be lower class and, and often lack higher brain function, they're not unhappy. And the, the argument of the world state would be that, well, if we do need people to work in our factories, if we need people to do dirty jobs, why not breed people who won't be unhappy doing this? And that obviously feels completely wrong to us, but it's actually remarkably hard to explain a way out of that argument. Isn't it better if people need to live less than ideal lives that we should forcibly make them unable to realise this? Mm. What I think what's important is, talking to both those points, is that um, I don't get any sense, I don't think there's any literary evidence to believe that Huxley did not want the average person reading his book, and this is a popular book, this isn't, this isn't an intellectual tract, to emulate his hero in the book, almost an Ayn Randian hero, to be perfectly honest with you, which is, uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, Helm Holtz Watson. Hel- say it again? Helm Holtz Watson. Helm Holtz Watson. That's the person he wants everyone to emulate, so that's pretty clear, I think, from the book. So Huxley seeing the book being produced, he sees the populace, who we know he looks down on from a traditional point of view, okay, that, that's accepted reading the book and taking from it we should all try to be like this guy so I think his aim is his critique of stupid people is not the idea that they're stupid and therefore they need to be controlled I think the point that he's trying to get across the book and the purpose of him writing it is you should work harder to emulate this guy not to try and satiate yourselves to desire so he's trying to he sees the normative purpose of the book to bring about a more thinking society and one less susceptible to the kind of controls that our desires and fast consumption would put upon us I think, for me, the the ultimate strange thing of that line of thinking, and and, and you're right. I mean, the the very end of Brave New World Revisited, he says exactly what, exactly that. Um, but it seems like quite a hard and fast switch, in some ways. I I, I think that ultimately his what he comes down on is. We should educate the, the the only prospect that freedom has if we educate people to be human bullshit detectors, right? So they can fight against propaganda and and, and everything else. Um, and 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 that's exactly what Watson does, right? He, Watson's the precondition for Watson becoming the heroic character of the book, even though he's not really. I mean, he is the hero, even though he's not yeah, yeah. dealt with much of the plot. I wish you yeah. Is his own recognition, his recognition of his own alienation, right? And then, despite all the fear that he feels and everything else, you know, against his conditioning and everything else, the fact that he then persists in being able to work through that is thus the condition of him going and being able to write poetry in the Sturm und Drang of the Falkland Islands or whatever it is he goes to do. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still not particularly comfortable with that, I think. Um, I, it's, it's difficult. I mean, 
you know, it, it is a bit like, and I know we try not to talk too much about other books, but it, it is a bit like Atlas Shrugged, right? Where, you know, you spend the entire book and Ayn Rand's building up this um, hero character and pulls every emotional punch out for you, to get you sympathising with them based on a utopia which is ultimately completely inconceivable. And, and, and so it just feels like a bit of a cop out to me. I don't, I don't know. Like, because ultimately it's, it is only the alphas and betas that are even capable of making that realisation. They're the only ones that have got the brain functions to do it. So that that notion of freedom, if you like, can only be extended in the sense of biology to a certain sense a certain section and a minor section of the population of that is to me really quite disconcerting. Um I may have an answer to that but I think Matt could take it. No, no, go ahead. Um, I would have thought that as an, as sort of you put yourself in the mindset of the kind of person that I'll just actually sees and reading this, they're going to their fear is that they are one of the lesser types. One of the, the epsilon themselves. Um, and their desire is to be one of the free thinking hierarchy. And this is why I think the book is a warning. I think the book, even if this isn't actually possible in the land of the book, I think what he's trying to get across is if you allow yourselves to be so simply satisfied, you will end up with the measure of freedom that these epsilons have, which is laughable and clearly ridiculous and clearly to be pitied, uh, if not contemptuously. Um, and therefore, the book is pushing you to strive towards being one of the types. I think the fear of being an epsilon is the great fear of the book. That's what the book is normally putting across. If you are not careful, you and the vast majority of your peers, this is how you will end up um, striving. But I, I see that as being the purpose of the book. To be Huxley's advocate, if it were, these epsilons don't live a miserable life. Good work. But would you want to be one? Well, if I was one, I wouldn't know. Mm, but who'd want to be one, though? Well, that's an impossible question to answer because he wouldn't know. They go to work, they do work they're happy to do, they enjoy it. They work very short days and they go off and play zero-gravity tennis or complicated games, metal balls and fancy shoots, and then they have recreational sex, and they go to the movies, and then they get Soma, a drug which makes everything happy. It's quoted as being basically Christianity and alcohol with none of the drawbacks. Mm. What? Is that a pitiable life? I think one of the interesting things here, though, I mean, it kind of plays on some of our notions of value in, 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 in the course of the book. I mean, one of the more famous experiments in political philosophy, was it Nozick that came up with the pleasure machine thing? I mean, if you plugged yourself into a machine that would basically make you happy for the rest of your life, um, and you wouldn't know you were plugged into the machine, would you do it? Oh, yeah. You know, and, and, and in some ways, one of our... As far as I know, most people's intrinsic reactions to say no, they wouldn't plug themselves in. Now, that, that leads us to some interesting things, because what we're trying to do is do exactly what John is doing in the book, which is to assert some kind of primal notion of value that we can't define, right? This is precisely why he has to speak through Shakespeare, despite the fact that in the book it's noted that he doesn't understand what he's saying most of the time. And, and, and it, it, it comes across that, you know, he's getting more out of the rhythm of the, of the verses and everything else 
than than the actual words. I mean, you know, it, it kind of goes both ways on on John Stuart Mill's idea that they were higher and lower pleasures, right? You know, uh, the the argument is that well, if epsilons have a life purely of lower pleasures, then they're not in pain or they're not suffering or anything else. And yet, there is still a set of higher pleasures that we can only reach in the context of instability. And stability is the, the key question. I think that's true, and I think that's what people reading would recognise, because I don't, I don't think when we're looking at his view of the epsilons, we need to think of the political message from the point of view of our theoretical empathy of the epsilons. Well, if we sit ourselves and ask the question that Matthew asked, he's clearly right, which is, is this that terrible life? Well, there's definitely an argument to say that it isn't. But I don't think Aldous Huxley as a writer is going to be thinking about it that way. It's not a sensible way to think about it. The sensible way to think about it is, if to the audience reading this at this level, what are they going to think of the prospects, prospects of being an epsilon? And I'd say if you did a survey on it, 99.9% of them would say, I would very much not want to be one. And I think that's where the political message of the book is that even if it could be argued to be a reasonable life, it's a life that no one would want, and therefore you should be afraid of it. I can't imagine that the reaction was that would have been any different at the time, and I can't imagine that Huxley thought the reaction was going to be any different. I certainly don't imagine that he wrote the book thinking, this will convince a number of people to be epsilons. I really doubt that was uh, his thought process. It doesn't really make any sense. Well, I think, I mean, he would probably argue, actually, that the majority of people take it upon themselves to be epsilons in the first place, right? True. Um, I mean, it's very platonic in that sense. Shifting, shifting the emphasis slightly. I mean, if that's the, and we seem to have come up, up on this consensus that uh, Helmholtz is, is is the hero of the book, uh, despite being quite understated in it. But it, where, wherein lies the failure of Bernard and John in that sense? Because both of them strive the, horrendously to 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 break that mold, and yet. Bernard, effectively, his his struggle against the society isn't genuine enough. Yeah, and what one of our, our quasi rules is that Alice told us to only ever swear if it's in the service of humour, and I'm going to invoke that rule because the primary problem Bernard has is that he's a dick. He's manipulative. He's petty. He's shallow. He cares about his cologne more than his friends. As soon as he gets any kind of power, he immediately uses it to destroy people. He uses the savage to destroy his boss, then he tries to destroy the savage. He dislikes Helmholtz, because Helmholtz is friends with the savage. He uses his social status to manipulate women. And then when it all goes wrong, he gets down on his knees and cries and begs the world controller not to banish him. His failing is just that he's a miserable little man. And I, the first time I read Breaking World, I kind of liked Bernard, and then when I reread it for this, I couldn't remember why. I mean, he has almost no redeeming teachers. His, his rebellion against the world state isn't because the world state is horrible and oppressive and dehumanizing and alienating. His rebellion against the world state is because he doesn't get laid as much as his colleagues do. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, but I, I, I don't know, within, within the book, I mean, you, you know, you get all, all these kind of uh, petty discussions in Marxism over... What's genuine Marxism and what's, you know, I mean, Asseline books and all the rest of it. Um, it gets really fun when they start arguing what's a genuinely Marxist interpretation of Marx. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I, mean I, th I think that's what Bernard's there for, right? To show us, in some sense, that actually, despite being an alpha plus or whatever, you know, he's not actually an alpha plus because he's not capable of 
addressing those questions or, or something else. I mean, it's either that or there's some line through the book which seems to run that there are some utopian elements in in in, in that society and 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 precisely Helmut's strength is he knows which ones to engage in or when he wants to engage in them he engages in them and when he doesn't he doesn't I would imagine that his role I mean you can have a philosophical role from him and you can just simply have a literary role from a narrative role from his narrative role is Huxley needed to come up with a plausible circumstance within the context of the world that he created to have somebody introduce it to an element because otherwise it's just a description of a world and we need to have a plot and in order to have a plot, he introduces a person suffering from the classic ego, the self-esteem thing. He is somebody who's supposed to be an alpha plus, so he's trying to always push the world to view him as an alpha plus. But because of his shortcomings, he doesn't see himself in that way. So Quite literally shortcomings. Exactly. So he's always trying to make up for it. So he starts doing lots of things to make up for it, which is where the plot comes from. Uh, there's actually a literary term for this, which I can't remember. Um, motivating all the different actions that, that, that go on as a result. Um, I'm not sure if there's a... I mean, I could totally agree with Matthew saying that he's no redeeming features. I'm not sure if there's more to him than that. There is a question, you could say, is why the obvious thing to do would have been to make him... Was it Helmholtz? Helmholtz? Uh, would have been to make him the hero of the book. Yeah, that's right. Just drop yeah. marks altogether. But... It's a tough one. I, off the top of my head, it's difficult to think of reasons why you wouldn't do that. Um... I don't know, perhaps because he was thinking of Helmholtz's actions and Helmholtz's actions didn't go in the direction that he would need them to, didn't reveal as much. Virtue is boring. Questions. Yeah, virtue is boring is another one. It could be just purely literary reasons or it could be deeper reasons. I, I, I'm not sure I can answer that. Right so, Alex, you had some thoughts on John Savage as a character. I did. And his failure to reconcile himself with either the Savage Reservation or the World State. Yeah, oh, right, yeah. I mean... So the weird thing at the end of the book, I mean, so the culmination of the book is this discussion between John and, and Mustafa Mond after Bernard pitifully has gone and cried or, you know, passed out or something. I think he drugs himself. Um, I don't know why John didn't go back to the reservation. You know, he... He's never happy. But this is the thing, right? But he claims... That unhappiness is necessary. That unhappiness is necessary. And when, when Mustafa puts all these things in front of them, he says, I claim them all. What he actually does in 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 going to Peterborough or wherever he ends up, I don't know, it sounded very Hunkantes in the description, um, is he compromises. And I think actually that that's the the point at which John stops being the hero. We you know we we're given this kind of transition in the book. We discover that Bernard, as Matt so eloquently put it, is a bit of a dick. You know, he's manipulating everyone else, you know, and, and, and John is the person that we're left with to defend authentic experience and poetry and all of those mm. things. And then he compromises. He goes to this, you know, kind of supposedly lonely place, um, you know, becomes a bit of a flagellant, you know, every time he's, he thinks of Lenina, he starts uh, flagellating himself. Mm. You know, so, and, and, and he hates himself for taking canned food with him. And I find it profoundly strange in some ways, because, I mean, that John, John's fall is, 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 is not that he can't find that 
mode of experience or, or whatever else, because he clearly has it in Lenina and everything else, but he sees it as contaminated with the kind of trappings that come with modern society and starts beating himself and, 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 and eventually commits suicide. Well, perhaps John's the other sort of... I mean, John is sort of representative of what the world of the other kind of control looks like. John is representative of the world of social sanction. He's representative of the world where morality is the control on actions, uh, which was very much the world that Freud saw as existing. He saw that human beings were innately disharmonious beasts and that morality and social sanction worked to control us. Um, and I think through John Huxley's telling us that's not the answer either. I mean, you can certainly read the book as a very simplistic defense of enlightenment, which is to say that neither the sort of superficial... <coughs> during Well, defense of the sense of enlightenment. During the enlightenment, there was always the argument that the cause of disharmony was scarcity, and that we could only... So Adam Smith can, is obviously the, the great answer to this. We can only figure out the way to produce non-scarcity, to produce abundance, the spread of opulence, as Smith says it. Um, we'll end up a world without moral arms. We'll end up with a world without people competing and fighting with each other and scrapping in, in order to make a good living. Uh, and thus we will have our people to, to pursue their moral selves. Um, I think Huxley is slightly critical of that idea because he's showing us that even with the spread of opulence, you, you're still not going to end up with a good society, you're going to end up with a negative society, or at least the only way to spread opulence is that way. But I think what really he's saying is that, and again I'll come back to the, the, the hero of the book, that reason is the key. And not just rationality, not just the pursuit of rationalization, but the enlightenment goal of critique reason. Reason as deployed as a tool to critique A, the world of consumerism and cheap pleasures and so on and so forth. And I come back to your point about John Stuart Mill, the higher and lower pleasures and benefits the higher pleasure. But also the superstition, the crushing morality and so on and so forth that John displays. John isn't reasoned enough. He doesn't look at his own upbringing and is not able to say to himself, I'm controlling myself too much my hatred for desire, etc., etc., is damaging me. A reasoned approach would look at the world of desire and say, there are good things here. And a reasoned approach would look at the world of morality and say, there are things to be pursued here. And uh, would attempt to pursue them. And I imagine it's perhaps that was his way of thinking through the two great sort of controlling forces. I think that, I mean, that's probably the case. I mean, I, I, I think that's definitively external to the book. I mean, even within the book, it's external to the book because... That kind of balance between, you know, and you do you get you get quite a lot of that kind of classic enlightenment metaphor. I mean, it comes from Kant about childhood and adulthood, where adulthood generally stands for self control. And Helmholtz says, "Well, I'm trying to figure out." Oh, sorry, Bernard says, "Well, I'm trying to figure out whether it's possible to be an adult all the time." But of course, within the book, that can only happen external on one of the islands where it's not a threat to stability. And I, 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 I take your point in, in, in terms of rationalization and everything else. I mean, one of, one of the great things about it, of course, is, is you get these brilliant, I mean, it's name dropping a lot of it, but you know, you get, um, the, the consistent, um, consistent use of contemporary names. Like Ford. Like, well, Ford. I, we haven't discussed that yet. Maybe we should come on to that next. But I mean, one, one of, one of the major threats that Huxley labels in, in, in Revisited is still overpopulation. Right? And of course, in the book, the um, the third or whatever of females that can still reproduce wear belts of contraceptives called Malthusian belts. Now, Malthus obviously being the great proponent of problems such as overpopulation in, in, in early economic theory. Um, I mean, to kind of 
bring things to the technology side then. I mean, we haven't got much time left, but um, we can kind of work through it. Um, Ford. Um, I mean, this book's set roughly 600 years from when Huxley was writing it, I think, wasn't it? And, 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 and rather than uh, AD and BC, you've got AF, which is Anno Ford or after Ford. Um, and, and, and this kind of creation of the of, of religion around around technology. I, I mean, of Henry Ford and Sigmund Freud. Well, I mean, yeah, but I think I think I mean even that is functional, right? I mean, you know, it, early in the book, it's it, they seem to have the, this kind of divine idea of Henry Freud and Henry Freud. I've done it. <laughs> I've done it. Henry Ford. Um, but then they say, well, sometimes. Then it says sometimes they call him Freud, and the name seems to change depending on what he was talking about. <laughs> Um, you know, they've got this kind of strange amalgamation where they cut the tops off crosses, so the model, so the T, as in the model T Ford motor car, um, is, is, is the kind of divine symbol. Um, and I, th I think in some ways, my, uh, I, I, I think we've got kind of maybe different ways of reading this because we've got different priorities. I mean, I, I, I still find that that right at the core, um, that kind of, uh, quite, I, I think quite brutish modernism runs through the book um, in a way that perhaps you're more given to historicising than I am. I think it's a critique. I think, I think look, he generalises what he sees are genuine problems. So he see, like, he can't, he's not constructing a book from people will make up all these lies and uh, pretend that these things are problems. I think what he's trying to say is, look, there are genuine problems in the world, and this is the kind of direction that we might go in solving them. And population is one of those problems. But I think he's trying to say this isn't the way we should be solving them. We should be trying to solve them through reason. But this is a way that it might end up being solved because these problems have to be addressed, and they're very, very serious. And there are people in this department today who, I don't know if you remember Ken Booth's lecture where he talked about the three great troubles of the future, one of which was population growth. There are lots of people today who still strongly believe it. Um, people who tend to be opposed to neoclassical economics for one. But I think with Ford, again, this is just another example of how things can get out of control. But it brings us on to a point which I meant to raise earlier, but I haven't, which is the conception of technological change in this book. And that also sort of ties into to what extent do we think we can learn something from this, or how current is this, or how afraid should we be of the picture of the future that he presents. And I would suggest not very. And the reason that I would suggest that is, um, one, for what we said earlier, which is about people's general desire to believe in things. I think we were all agreed on that that human beings' desire is much more complicated than he thinks and they're not going to be satisfied as easily with consumption. But I think that if you really look at the utopian world he's created, you think how incredibly difficult it would be to bring into existence. Effectively, what he's done is he's set up a... He sort of imagined a desired world from the point of view of somebody who thought like the world controllers in this book and said, how would they bring this about? And at every single stage, there are innumerable problems, all of which require technological fixes. Now, what the book isn't clear on is whether the technologies were all there and then they were applied, but it seems more likely that what he's saying is the end goal was there and the technologies were brought about to fix the innumerable problems. Things like SOMA, things like various forms of genetic engineering, things like constant production of gadgets for consumerism, and so on and so on and so on. All of these things needed to oil the wheel that keeps the thing going. And the simple fact is technological change doesn't work that way. Technology does not come along as a result of our desire for it, or even our necessity for it. 
technological change is not a stabilizing element, tends to more likely be a destabilizing element. So the idea that if there was an epic group of people who wanted to create this end, they would bring about the technologies needed to serve it, I think is profoundly false. Isn't that <coughs> core to the idea of science fiction, though? So if science fiction is about writing large the problems of our time, or discussing generally the problems of humanity, then one of the purposes of fictional technologies within sci-fi is to get rid of problems without which we couldn't have these discussions. What would society look like if it was eugenically ordered? Well, Huxley invents the Bokhanovsky process just so he can play around with the idea of what it would look like. And yes, there is hard sci-fi where people discuss what technology would do to our society or how that technology might be brought about. But to me, it's always been absolutely key to sci-fi. The technology is there to get you to the point where you can discuss these ideas. And it's not a failing of the book that it's maybe unrealistic that these technologies have been brought about, but it's entirely standard to the genre, I'd have thought. I understand exactly your point, and it occurred to me as well when I was thinking about this, but I think what's important is that it's not simply a case of you wants to discuss what the world would be like if it turned into a place where we were all under control and so on. I mean, that's a degree, that's true. But I think where it differs from something like Star Trek, which wants to imagine a world where we're all in space interacting with aliens and sort of play out the Enlightenment in that environment, I think what he's trying to tell us is that technology... I think he is, he's coming from a point of view of the world in the 1930s, which really did see and profoundly believed, and if you read around at the time, you'll see this is clear, that technological solutions to problems were available. He saw technology as a force that was controlled. They all did at that period of time. The, you know, the, the Fordist doctrine of, you know, we can fix anything that needs to be fixed and you know, pay people high wages and yet still be able to produce a car cheap enough that the average person can buy it, was generally very widely believed. You're talking about a very technologically optimistic world, and certainly in the late 1920s, perhaps to a lesser extent after the Great Crash, but probably still quite strongly. So I think he does have a conception of technological change, which is that it can solve all these problems. And I think that worries him, because I think he then sees technological change as a sort of a neutral force, which can be appropriated by the, 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 the evil, if you like, or the bad people, to serve their particular ends. And I think that that fear that technology can do that, or can be brought about in that way, or can be controlled in that way, is not a fear that we need to take seriously. Certainly, he, he almost says this word for word of Brave New World Revisited. He says, the old dictators fell because they could never simply they could never supply their subjects with enough bread, enough surfaces, enough miracles and mysteries, nor do they possess a really effective system of mind manipulation. Under a scientific dictator, education will really work. Most men and women will grow up to love their servitude, and they will never dream of revolution. There seems to be no good reason why a thoroughly scientific dictatorship should ever be overthrown. And so I, th I think we're now spot on. I think there's, I mean, I, I think there's a little bit more to it than that in some sense because while at least in the novel, and I, I don't know, I, I haven't re revisited at length. While at least in the novel, you know, you've you've got kind of this fairly teleological view of history, that uh, technology that it kind of progresses. He doesn't seem to tie that to anything in particular. He seems to see it as a kind of force in itself. And I, I think this is at play, particularly with, I mean, at the time, the idea that a government could control that kind of thing. Because, of course, with empire and everything else, you had quite strong governmental controls over the economy. Um, in fact, I mean, Brave New World was only released the year after Britain left the gold standard, for instance. But I think culturally, and I, I think while he has optimism in technology, culturally he's absolutely panicked. And I, I see it really as kind of a symptom of 
the kind of modernist movement that he moved within, which saw kind of the fracturing of all possible values and all of that kind of thing as technological progress developed as a source of massive anxiety. I see your point. I mean, to some extent, he is of the... Uh, Langdon Winner is the person who asked the question, do artefacts have politics? And I think there's definitely a degree to which he believes that it does. But I think this is actually a tension. And on a, what I, I, I wouldn't try and claim that he has any consistency in terms of technological change. I actually think there's two views that he doesn't recognise are competing. One is the Fordism develops, these things develops, uh, sort of knowledge, scientific knowledge of genetics and so on starts to develop. Drug technology starts to develop. All of those things make new worlds possible, create new worlds like. Um, and that's true, and to that extent technologies do have politics. They do open up new doors that would not have existed before, and therefore allow things that wouldn't have existed otherwise. But despite seeing those things developing as a force in and of themselves, so technology is sort of, uh, a, a, sort of a random force that sort of opens things and closes things and so on, which I think is a much more sensible view of technology, he then also, under the Brave New World World Government, seems to assume that we can bring about whatever technologies we need to fix the problems that having this form of social control is going to bring about. And there are innumerable problems, as he sees himself, of people being happy, of not falling into depression, of um, <coughs> having something to do with their free time, of not desiring, not having sort of resentment and so on and so forth between the smaller classes, uh, the greater number of people who are in the lesser classes towards those people who are in the, the higher classes. And all of these problems seem for him to have technological solutions because the world government can bring about those technologies that are required. So there are two competing views of technology there, which I don't think he's ever resolved. Well, I think ultimately that's core to the tension in the book, right? I mean, one of the strange things, I mean, one of the main differences, I would argue, despite, I mean, Huxley's argument that in, in, in Revisited, that actually the modern world looked quite a lot like the world in Brave New World, um, one of the things that is core there is that technological development, while it has the solutions, is removed from the general process of social reproduction. Now, I mean, we live in a world where, you know, supposedly, you know, everyone has work and everyone's contributing and everyone's a part of the development of these solutions, whether you're consuming more or consuming less or borrowing more or borrowing less and everything. I mean, you're behavior, you know, we see this with uh, climate change, right? One of the, despite the fact that the vast majority of any reasonable solution of reducing carbon emissions or whatever else would be found in the reduction of shipping and everything else, you know, as the, as the major contributors to these problems. What we're told is on a daily basis that our individual behavior can make the contribution to, um, to, to reducing climate change. Now, I mean, one of the I mean, we never see the island society described, although I know one of his last books was called The Island. I don't know yeah. whether it's got any relation. Um, it does, yeah. It does. Um, we never see that. But I mean, I, 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 when I read that um, towards the end of the book, my immediate envisaging was on these islands, technologies 50 years into the future. And then they just kind of use it as a drip feed to the society proper in inverted commas That's exactly in order to... In the book, Mustafa Mont, I think, does say that, or at least it's said afterwards by either in the island or something like that. They, no, I think Mont says it, that they have a range of gadgets that they get to release onto the market to satisfy consumer demand when it arises. Because he does have some notion of what's required in a planned economy. Uh, he is aware that a planned economy does have problems with demand. Um, so he talks about making sure that you have people conditioned to constantly buy things. 
So it's Jamulaj, any of that, an outside problem. He, he speaks of, um, to get something approved, it has to be a technology that is more resource wasteful than the technology that came before it. He... Is there an energy? Is energy discussed in the book at all? I don't remember. They don't. Huxley said afterwards that there's no mention of atomic energy, but I think that's another one of those sci-fi hand waves that oh, okay. we can just assume they have power from. Well, I think I think actually, I mean, it causes all kinds of weird problems. I, I I wasn't aware. I mean, there's a lot about consumption in the book, but not a lot about differences in consumption or anything else. I mean, quite a lot of the stuff they're provided for free. They're provided with accommodation. They're provided with drugs. So those are the two things they basically need. Um, and yet, there's not much variation in what they consume, which seems strange because I don't see what they're actually paying for um, mm. in some ways. Do you, do you know what I mean? It kind of plays up one side of the equation without talking much about the other. Well, this is the this is the thing. I mean, presumably the gammas, deltas, and epsilons don't need that much. Mm. And so the alphas and betas, I mean, they seem to have helicopters and jets and various other things. But there's, I'm I'm, I'm not sure about, to put it bluntly, I'm not sure about money or prices. There's a monetary system, because Bernard, remember, leaves his cologne tap running when he goes on holiday to the Sabbath Reservation. Oh, he realises yes. how much it's going to cost him, and that's why he phones Helmholtz. Mm. <laughs> and Helmholtz wants to talk to him about some alienating problem at the hatchery, and Bernard is instead just worried about how much money this tap is going to cost him. Mm. So the, the, the alphas certainly have money. But... Well, just to finish up, I mean... There's obviously a lot going on here. We haven't discussed nearly as much as, as we wanted to. But, I mean, um, lessons for today or prescience or um, what themes do you think it carries most strongly? I mean, there's a bit, like we said, I mean, it carries a lot, of, a lot of different messages in it. But, I mean, have you got anything that you think? It speaks to China, or at least it speaks to a particular interpretation of China. But, again, I think it's wrong. I think a lot of people would say, look at China, look at the China model which is basically a political trade-off, whereby people are given consumption, in a simplified view of it, it's a trade-off, where people are given unbridled consumption of capitalism and all the things that that brings, and in return they give up political control. Um, but I think that's false food with China. Um, and I've come to this conclusion through teaching Chinese students both here and in Beijing, um, that even Chinese people very much need something to believe in. Well, a Chinese person, if you talk to them, will tell you, and this is the party line, but at the end of the day, we're all fed ideologies, so that's the difference. They will say to you, yes, China does not have political freedom now, but political freedom would not allow China to bring about the improvement, continued improvements in economic well-being that are needed. Chinese people profoundly believe in a better tomorrow. That's what they're buying into. It is not simply the case that Chinese people support the current Chinese regime, Chinese government, because they're able to buy iPhones and so on and so forth. Profoundly, in uh, so, as far as I can see, across the elite, across the student level, they very much believe that political uh, freedom is something that they've given up for the time being in order to pursue a better tomorrow, which just tells us that consumption is not enough by itself. You do need to give people something to believe in. So, again, while some people might point to that as a, a worrying thing, sign for the future of people can be controlled through consumption, I don't really believe that that's true. I think one of the most pressing things about the novel for anyone reading it in any political system in any era is that our opinions are not our own. They are a product of the society that brought us into being. Now, in Brave New World, this is literally true in that people are unable to have opinions that haven't been drip-fed to them while they're in the bottles. But I think the novel is very acutely aware that John Savage can only conceive of things in the way he conceives of things, and Bernard can only conceive of things because of what he's grown up and learned. 
And of course, maybe we have no way to escape this, but I was very aware that our reactions to this novel are born out of a given cultural background, a given academic background, which we've been raised into. It's not been read to us thousands of times while we've slept in a hatchery, mm. but it's been placed in our minds in a very similar way. And I wonder if there is a way around that. And even if it's not, it's something we should be aware of. Mm. Would you know if you were living in a brave new world? It's basically the question Matthew is asking. The Matrix question. Well, it goes right back to Descartes, right? It goes back to do, Plato. Do, do I know if the devil's controlling my thoughts? And... It goes back to Plato. Are we in a cave? Mm. All right. We're going to have to uh, finish up there, I'm afraid. So um, thanks for taking part. <laughs> Thank you and, for uh, uh, Thanks for listening. All right. Bye.